You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. <clears throat> if this is your first time here at Grace, we extend to you a special welcome. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace, and it is so wonderful for us to be gathered, even as spread out as we are. Thank you. Really great attendance. The Lord has blessed us with the <clears throat> um, weather this morning or with the temperature, but because the gnats are what they are, we're going to move the services next week until 5.30 a.m. at 5.30 a.m. So we think the sun will be up by then. I wouldn't know, but we think it will be. Now, just kidding, we'll be back at the same time. And I never do this, but I have to do it this morning. I, it'd be interesting who would keep up with the number of times in the year I say, I never do this. Uh, but truly, getting some feedback here, I'm not sure where the problem is. But uh, today is a birthday for a very special lady, my wife, Allison, who is not able to be here um, because of night last night. Should I move this? I don't know if that's going to be a help or not. A help or not. All right. So anyway, Allison is not able to be here this morning, but uh, her two children, my stepchildren, my children really, John and Sarah are with her. They came down, surprised her Friday night and surprised both of us. And so we're Thrilled to have them here, but happy birthday, Allison. Say it on three. We're not going to sing. One, two, three. Happy birthday, Allison. Okay. I will be home with my gift um, probably about 45 minutes after the service. No, just kidding. I've already given my gift this morning. Well, do you remember what it was like to make plans for which you had reasonable expectations of coming to pass, even if you acknowledge when you made plans, Lord willing. Making plans has always been contingent. Life has always been fragile. We just are reminded very graphically sometimes. The tally motto on vacations has always been, if you don't make plans for the, for the week, then how are you going to change them? You have to make plans so that you can change the plans, right? Uh, what Ben said this morning in prayer time, and Chris and worship team, thank you all this morning for bringing us to this place where we're ready for the word uh, and leading us to the throne of God in worship. Um, but I had uh, plans for finishing our Sunday morning studies from the book of John by the end of the summer. Then we decided to meet outside, which calls for a shorter service. So we're going to wait until sometime after Labor Day uh, when the last five chapters of John can be given the attention that they deserve. Lord willing, that's the case. In the meantime, we will begin a series based loosely on the theme, Conform to the Image of God's Son. And I'll talk about how we're going to be processing this theme throughout the message. And I say we because several of us will be preaching between 
now in labor. My plan at Labor Day, my plan is to preach every other Sunday. And if enough of you come up and say, you know, maybe you should take a little more time off, then I'll know something. Uh, there are multiple disciplines and practices that the Lord uses in our lives to conform us to the image of Jesus. Think about that. Multiple disciplines and practices that the Lord uses in our lives to conform us into the image of Jesus. If you concentrate on humility, the humility of Christ coming to earth and our responsibility to consider others more important than ourselves, as we talked about a few weeks ago in Philippians 2, or if you focus on your identity in Christ, if you focus heavily on a spirit of gratitude for what God has done for you, or if you practice rejoicing in suffering, as Jeff talked about this morning. Well, the Lord will use any of those disciplines and many more to conform you to the image of Jesus. It's like many different streams that find their way to the same river and the river that is headed toward the ocean. Today's text, which serves as an introduction to the series, is Romans 8, 18 through 30. Isn't that great the way that we're all natured differently and so we tend to focus maybe too much on one thing and not enough on other aspects, but it, the Lord gets us to the same place anyway. If you focus on humility, sooner or later you're going to be thankful. If you focus on gratitude, you're going to have a humble heart. Because you can't be grateful at that level without finding your way to, to the place that God has intended for you to go all along. So before we look at three truths and applications for Romans 8, 18 through 30, uh, from the full text, I'm going to be reading from Romans 8, 28 to 30 for our initial reading. And we haven't done this since we've been out here, but I wonder if you're able... Stand with me while the scripture is read. Um, if I'm in the seat, I'm not wanting to get up until I leave. But if you're able, stand up. And, and that's quite all right if you don't. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those he whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Be seated. Three areas we're going to focus on from our text this morning, beginning with suffering is a key component in God's design for making us holy. Therefore, do not yield to either fatalism or utopianism. I'll say that again for those of you who are writing here. Suffering is a key component in God's design for making us holy. Holy. Therefore, 
do not yield to either fatalism or utopianism. And we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25 in this section. So that's a fun thought. Wouldn't you agree? We don't become holy without suffering. We just can't be conformed to the image of Christ unless he takes us through suffering. By suffering, I do not mean the torture that you put your body through in exercise or diet for a greater good that serves you. You can see that I am untroubled by such pursuits. I'm not selfish like that. Dieting and exercising so that I'll look good. <laughs> uh, I should be far more concerned with such pursuits. The suffering mentioned, though, in Romans 8, 18 to 25, that brings us benefits is very much like exercise and diet that lead to a better body and a better life. Only the goal is different, and the suffering is not by our choice. We don't willingly go into suffering. Now, some people have through the years. You know, they've taken a vow of poverty and gone into a monastery. I, you heard about the guy who was allowed two words a year at the monastery. I just thought of this. I hung around Ram Whitley enough that they just come to my mind, you know. So he was allowed two words a year. And after, I mean, excuse me, two words every 10 years. And so after 10 years, they said, what would you like to say? He said, bad food. Uh, and after t 10 more, he said, hard bed. And after thir t 10 more, he said something of the same nature. And the guy said, or he said, I quit. That's what he said after 30 years. And the guy said, well, you may as well. You've only complained the whole time you've been here. That's all you've done is complain. So it's not that kind of suffering that we put ourselves into, but it's suffering not only that the Lord allows, but the Lord ordains. Now, get your head around that and accept that here at the beginning. It's suffering that God ordains for your good, as we've already read, and his glory, of course, as, as well. And it all fits together. It all ties together <clears throat> verse 18 jeff read that this morning and said a few beautiful things about it already for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us some translations say in us the greek is a little ambiguous and if it's in us that blows my mind but there's all kinds of indication that that's an okay translation the glory that will be revealed in us. In so many ways, it's a shame to begin a sermon, much less a series with Romans 8, 18, when sufficient context cannot be given. What has gone before in Paul's letter to the church in Rome is nothing less than the fullest and best description of who we were and how we lived before Jesus, plus who we are and how we are to live after Jesus. And now in the second half of Romans 8, God, through Paul's writings, will help us understand his purposes for us in a confusing age. When Jeff was saying suffering, whenever I think of suffering, he said, I think of the mask. I thought he was going to say, whenever I think of suffering, I think of 2020. What a year this has been. 
it just won't stop. It gets worse and worse. And I hate what's going on this year. I hate it all. Uh, so much of what's going on and far more than just what you see. It's been a tough year. But it's for our good. And it's for God's glory. And it's for the working of his purposes in the universe and in our personal individual lives. Verse 18 as a summary of what will be written through verse 30 and truly through verse 39. It's almost like the prologue in John's gospel. Every Sunday you could go back to the prologue and say, there it is. He told you this was coming. You could do the same thing with Romans 8, 18 for the rest of the chapter. He told you this is what was coming. As you will find in many New Testament passages, suffering and glory are paired together, though in contrast and not by comparison. Paul says that suffering and glory cannot be compared. And yet, they go together. <laughs> Not in my mind. But in God's mind, they go together. We're going to read Romans 8, 18 to 25. And I'm going to stop and make a few observations along the way. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now watch how many times this theme is repeated. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The second half of Romans 8 summarizes what happened when Adam sinned and fell, taking God's creation down with him and what God is doing about the problem that is ever before us. Uh, the language in verse 19 is really really uh, colorful. Uh, it's the, the language that Paul uses is akin to the universe straining its neck, standing on tiptoes, looking for the redemption of the sons of God for those who know God, because that will be the signal that all will be made right. It is absolutely right for us to care about the environment. But I'm telling you this, and I'm not saying that this negates what I just said. We absolutely, of all people, God's children ought to care about the, the environment. But the earth is looking past our carbon footprint reduction, straining to see when Jesus will return. Because when it happens, he will restore the world to what it was before Adam sinned. Here is something else in verses 20 and 21 that may be difficult to process. God is the one who subjected his creation to futility. I heard John Piper preaching about this one time, talking about the different ways that futility is seen in our land. And he talked about some really big things, the difficult things. And then at the very end, he said, anybody lost their car keys lately? I mean, this world is filled with futility. We did not want 
anything to do with the wickedness and destruction and death and futility that came with sin. But we got it anyway when Adam fell. We like to think that God doesn't send people to hell, that they send themselves. Or we send ourselves to hell. We want to think that God doesn't cause the effects brought on by sin. And surely there is truth in that. It was our sin. It was Adam's sin. When he sinned, we sinned. It was his sin that caused all of these effects. But we are told that God subjected the creation to futility. The difference between God bringing about all of this that goes on and anybody else bringing it about is that he can do it in hope. What is hope? That all creation will be set free from the bondage to corruption that the earth and all its inhabitants endure. Verses 22 to 25. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Just think about that. Some of you who have had 28, 36-hour labors. Um, the entire time, the creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. And, and in many ways, that's the way life is. We have these great moments of relief and pleasure. But there is that pain. And not only the creation, verse 23 says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is why I so often say it's stated very specifically here. It's found in other places too. But our hope in the New Testament is not an assurance that I'm going to get past this sickness. Or it, we surely do hope that we have good weather on Sunday mornings. It's not that kind of a hope. Our hope resides in a confident assurance that we belong to Jesus through our trust in his sacrificial death on the cross. And through no other means, not our good works, not things that we intend to do or have done even. Not because we're a church member, but because we have believed that Jesus died on the cross in our place. And, and our hope is that when Jesus returns, all wrongs will be made right and they will remain that way for eternity. Sometimes things get fixed and then they turn right around and they're all to pieces again. It's not going to be that way when Jesus returns. If the world is a mess because of sin, and if it's not going to be as it should be, then what is the use of trying to change the world? Or maybe you think the opposite. The world is absolutely a mess because of other sins and it's up to us to change it, and in fact, we are to be agents of change in our everyday lives according to the way we live, but especially according to the way that we love one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. Scripture, though, justifies neither fatalism, well, it really doesn't make any difference, nor utopianism. 
fallen though our world and its people are, we are stewards of God's good creation. We are mediators of God's love to those who don't know him through Jesus. But this world is not all there is. And the, this world and the next are inextricably linked, suffering and glory, for goodness sake. They go together. It is equally self-focused to think that we are going to bring about a utopia. 2020 has not been a good year for utopia, you might think, but some think it's an excellent time to bring about change. Utopian impulses, though, always end in violence and not a godly violence if taken where they intend to go. The only righteous reign on this earth will be that of Jesus when he returns. We should, along with creation, crane our necks, standing on our tiptoes, calling for him to come quickly. Lord Jesus, come quickly. You know, we've expected the Lord's return for 2,000 years, you look at the writers of the New Testament. They expected Jesus to return within their lifetime. John, by the end of his life, as we'll see in John 21, when we get there, was beginning to think, ah, not happening in my lifetime. But the signing of the Magna Carta, the, 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 the defeat of the Spanish Armada, you go on and on. All, all through history, people have said, this is it. This is when he comes. And I think one of the reasons that God gives us that, that spirit of he's just about here is it keeps us on our toes looking for him. It's a beautiful thing that he's put in our heart, given us that hope that he is going to return soon. Why is suffering such a key component of God's design for making us holy? Well, that could be a whole series in itself, right? But maybe it's because it reminds us of our frailty and our dependence on the maker of the stars and the redeemer of our souls. That's the subject of verses 26 to 27 in our second point. Prayer connects us to the one whose wisdom exceeds even our own brilliance. Now that's said tongue-in-cheek, of course. <laughs> Prayer connects us to the one whose wisdom exceeds even our own brilliance. Waiting both eagerly and patiently as we are called to do in our text for Jesus' return and our entrance into eternal glory is not an easy balance to achieve anytime, but especially when things are exceptionally, especially confusing. Wait patiently, eagerly anticipate the Lord's return. In the first portion of our text, we were told that creation groans, and then stating the obvious, we also groan. In verses 26 to 27, we are told that the Spirit groans on our behalf so that God's will for us is accomplished. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. 
But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In the same way that Jesus experienced limitations that arrived with his human nature when he was on the earth. He submitted himself to limitations in the body of flesh. In the same way, the Holy Spirit groans along with creation and with us, longing for the settling of all accounts. You think you're saying, does justice never go forth like Habakkuk did? I may preach on that sometime this summer. Does justice never go forth? The Holy Spirit longs for the day when Jesus returns and all accounts will be settled. The Holy Spirit knows when it'll be. He understands, he's, he's God, it's part of the plan. But nonetheless, he empathizes with us at deep levels. Don't you have to go through something to empathize with someone else? Well, if you understand them and God knows us through Jesus, the Holy Spirit groans along with creation. If I were to ask you, which member of the Trinity intercedes for God's children? You would rightly say, Jesus. He's at the right hand of God, beside God on the throne, interceding for his children. But verse 27 tells us that the Spirit also intercedes for us. John Murray said that the children of God have two divine intercessors. Quote, Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven while the Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts, close quote. Perhaps the best translation for the end of verse 26 is found in the New International Version, version where we are told that the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. It is not that the groans are too deep for words, I think the ESV says that, or that they are inexpressible as other translations say, but that the words are unexpressed. <clears throat> now think about this. When you're suffering sometimes, you just want a with you. You don't want that friend necessarily to tell you how it's going to be all right or all that. No, no, no words, please. Just presence. The Holy Spirit loves us and communicates the depth of our hearts to the Father according to the will of God. As he groans with us in silence, he translates our prayers according to the Father's will. You may pray, Lord, please end this physical suffering that has paralyzed me. And the Holy Spirit may communicate something like, Father, please allow Jesus to shine brightly in her pain, pointing others to a hope that is better than anything this world can offer. We're not often able to pray those kinds of things for ourselves. It's one of the ways that God loves us. Tenderly, beautifully. 
is to, for the Holy Spirit to intercede on our behalf in the ways that God wants it. And the Father says, I'm with you, Spirit. I'll grant that prayer. The only way that such an explanation is comforting, of course, is if you trust God at the level described in the next three verses of our text, which is the focus of our last point. It is God's purpose for our lives, not our purpose, that conforms us to the image of his son, Romans 8, 28 to 30. So I'll say that again. It is God's purpose for our lives, not our purpose, that conforms us to the image of his son. Maybe one of the most frustrating things about living in the 21st century and 2020 in particular is that it feels like every challenge is supposed to be met. I mean, we're constantly promised it will all be fixed by science, by technology, or through revolution if necessary. Furthermore, on a different note, it is easy for us to become obsessed with our purpose in life. But when you read the Bible carefully, you discover that God is far more concerned with who you are than in what you do. He wants you to know and trust him more than he wants you to find and fulfill your purpose in life. Remember, God subjected the world to futility. So once again, let me ask, anything frustrating happened to you this past week? Were you frustrated with any of the news reports you saw this week? Um, someone in your home that you've been with for four months now, all the time, <clears throat> frustrate you this week? It's them that's part of the fall, right? Not you. Verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. You have to earn the right to share this verse with someone else, by the way. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, Jesus is going to have all kinds of siblings with him in heaven. We're already his brother, and that is mind-blowing. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I'm not going to talk about verse 30 hardly at all. Some people say, well, it goes straight from justification, which is when we're saved, to glorification, which is in heaven. Um, and he skips sanctification. Romans 5 through 8 is all about sanctification. That's the process of how we grow spiritually. We've read a good bit about it this morning, how we grow. Maybe it's best that we apply Romans 8.28 to ourselves rather than seek to encourage others with this verse. Especially if we have not gone through pain that we really did not think we could endure until the Lord helped us through and Romans 8 28 was a blessing for us it can only properly be understood and and applied in fact as part of the whole text that we have read which is placed in a far greater context of the book of Romans the suffering 
of verses 18, 25, that is the prayer focus of verses 26 to 27, is working, according to verse 28, at God's direction, the best possible outcome according to God's purposes. Oh, wait, outcome for God or outcome for us? Yes. Yes. It's a lot of yes in this text today. How? You might ask, how can that be true? When you know what happened to me. That question may never be answered in this life. But when we trust God, we trust the God who said it. Then we will receive by faith that his purposes are being fulfilled and his understanding encompasses all eternity he is conforming you to the image of his son. He is making you like Jesus. When they come out with the COVID vaccine, who plans to be first in line? You don't have to raise your hand. A lot of you, some of you are like, I'm not doing it. But when we vaccinate our children, again, I know it's controversial here or there. But when we vaccinate our children and they don't want that suffering, we're saying, you don't understand this, but I promise you, this is a good thing. Again, God's design is so much greater than any analogy that we could give. Suffering is a good thing. If this life is not a molecule in a drop of water in all the oceans of the world and all the fresh waters of the world to eternity, then this suffering may be a wonderful thing. When you, it's not to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, to be revealed in us. God's work in you began before he created the world. He foreknew you. The Greek word prognosko means that he knew you before time, or that he knew you relationally before time. Or better yet, he loved you before time. John Stott says he foreloved. Those he foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So I know here's something that's controversial. Not quite as controversial as COVID in masks. But still, it's controversial. Free will, predestination, all that stuff, you know. This verse does not mean that God knew what you were going to do, and so therefore he predestined you. It means he loved you so much that he called you into his family. And let me just say this. I know some of you are still struggling. And I know, I know we've got different ideas about free will and predestination. But I just want to say this. When I finally... After many years of fighting against the idea that God loved me enough before the foundation of the world to bring me into his family, before I had any idea about what was right and wrong, when I finally did that, a lot of scripture opened up for me. It may not be that way for you. You may know well more than I do, and you're right on this issue. But I'm just telling you, there is a great peace 
and rest. And you don't have to tell anybody for 10 years. Then you can start telling them, well, yeah, that's what I believe. But when you receive this by faith, God begins to, God will comfort your heart with this. That's the way this doctrine was written in the first century. Not so we could have theological debates, but hey, you don't belong to the Roman Empire. All of your rights are trampled on. You're treated like dirt. You're a slave for goodness sakes. Guess what? God chose you to be in his family. And there's no other family like that in the entire world. It's a love doctrine. A deep love. It's not an exclusion. God's salvation is exclusive. But this doctrine was written to comfort our hearts. So God knew you before time. And those he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Made it as if they had never sinned. If the fall had never happened as far as they're concerned. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so, that's all I'm going to say about verse 30. We'll come back to that another time. One last question. The language is a little bit tricky in Romans 8, 29 and 30. Does God conform us to the image of Jesus in this life or does it occur at the end of the age? Same old answer, yes. If that doesn't make sense now, well, it doesn't have to. We are all called to trust that God is working his will in our lives at all times. We are called to trust him and we like to say correctly that God is working all things for his glory and for our good. But he is working a far greater glory for us than we can imagine. A glory that will be fully revealed in time. This message could have been titled present suffering, future glory. But it's also true that God is already at work in the lives of his children. Making us more like Jesus. Which is in its, of itself glorious. Now think this past week, your responses to Governor Cooper's orders, your responses to the news depiction of events, did you respond like Jesus? Well, no, no, just, are you being conformed more to the image of Christ? That's his design for us. I'm going to talk about this soon. I know I'm going much longer than I'm supposed to, but it's so cool. I, I think this is a sign from the Lord, don't you? I'm, I'm really almost done. I just want to say this because I'm, I'm going to talk about this later. Life in these United States this last 250 years, as far as religious freedom, for many, not for all, but for many in this land, has been the anomaly of religious freedom for all of time since Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and ascended back to heaven, and the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost. We're not guaranteed freedom. And life used to be a lot more complicated. 
excuse me, a lot less complicated for Christians. What was our responsibility as far as the government was concerned? Obey Caesar, honor the emperor, take the ten politicians that you like the least of all time. Combine them by ten, or combine them and then multiply by ten. And Nero, you're not anywhere close to how bad Nero was. Peter said it, Paul said it, honor the emperor. Life used to be a lot less complex for Christians. Honor the emperor if they tell you to worship him, then you have to die. It's that simple. They'll take your family into the arena. They'll start with the youngest. They'll let the wild dogs tear that one apart and then on up to the dad being the last one. That's just pretty simple life. And God may yet graciously grant us Less complexity in our politics. Democracy, we the people, confuses a lot of things. We don't know how to live in this life. And when you think about it, democracy is a tease. It, it allows for all kinds of research and development. And we start to think that we can conquer, we can fix and conquer anything. Our primary responsibility is not to democracy. It's not to fix what is wrong here. We absolutely are to do our parts, but our parts is loving like Jesus loved and going to the places that he went to and entering in people into people's sufferings, but also to be willing to suffer yourself. And... As we learned in John over and over, by this will all men know you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. So we're here this morning, and those of you who are at home, with all kinds of different opinions about how democracy ought to go. We ought to be worried about what God's purpose for our lives is in the church and as individuals. Lest indeed he say, and that's not lest indeed, he's going to do what he's going to do. But the day may come much sooner than we think where life is less complicated than it is now. But for the meantime, let's take our cues for how we live in this world from Scripture. Trust God in these confusing days to have your best interest at heart as he molds you into the image of his son, all for his glory. Let's pray. Well, Father, anytime we talk about suffering, Anytime we talk about responsibility, anytime we talk about so many aspects of our daily lives, we want to say, yeah, but Lord, help us to stop with the word. Help us to just sit in the word, rest right there.
put it on our hearts. Put it in our minds to love you with all of our hearts, our souls, our, our mind, our strength. And may we love our neighbors as ourselves. And may we remember, as I heard this week, there's not a universal brotherhood, but there is a universal neighborhood. May we care deeply about our neighbors, especially those who have less, who have been persecuted and rejected. Those are the people you came to save. That's who we were before you saved us. Give us hearts that love you and love our neighbors at that level. And may we submit ourselves to suffering, to discipline, to spiritual disciplines that bring about a life that is conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. Make us like him. Help us to look like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.